Would you just uh, pray with me this morning? God, we um, invite you to be all around us. Um, as we come to your word this morning, would we learn from you? Would we um, live with our eyes wide open, um, ready and able to see what's going on in our lives? And may we be um, willing and obedient to take new steps of faith as you invite us forward. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So as already has been said a few times this morning, we're talking about spiritual family this morning. The reality that because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, we have the ability to live into a spiritual family. And I don't know what pops into your mind when I say the phrase spiritual family. And that might be an interesting conversation in and of itself for us to unpack a little bit this morning. But for me, what first comes to mind is this image I have of a leadership retreat I attended while I was in college. About 70 of us leaders, student leaders, uh, gathered at the end of the summer before the school year began at a camp. And we gathered in order to sharpen our leadership skills and to build community <clears throat> and to basically get into trouble and stay up too late because we needed to head back to campus to be responsible Christian leaders. And so Nancy Orberg, some of you know who she is, came and uh, was our speaker for the weekend. And I still remember the power of some of the words she spoke on community. And at the end of the retreat, the group of leaders and us gathered at the edge of the lake at this camp. And um, the soon-to-be new president of the college was supposed to be saying some words to wrap up. Um, but the reality was it was about 95 degrees out. They had delayed breakfast until after this wrap-up time so we could do this good Christian activity of like breaking bread together after this meaningful experience. And there were mosquitoes buzzing around us, and I don't know what else was buzzing around us because none of us had showered in like three days. And this show of Christian community, he says to us, let's all stand in a circle and hold hands and pray. And he prayed, and it was long. And I remember all of us standing in the circle and we're holding hands and we're kind of standing on one leg and we're standing on the other leg and then we're like looking around like, is he gonna wrap up this thing? And so now forever, my image of spiritual family is this group of people standing together who are hungry, who are sweaty, who are tired and who smell bad, standing in a circle holding hands. And maybe you've kind of arrived to some of those conclusions as well. Your experience might have been different, but maybe some of those pictures come to mind for you. Because the truth is, the reality of spiritual family is kind of complex. And that reality has not been lost on me this past week as I prepared for this. And I heard this voice in my head saying, Clean, this should be an easy message to give. Like this is about Christian community and spiritual family and commitment. And this should just flow out of you. Colleen, you're just coming back from sabbatical. You should have all of these great words and insight. Like no problem. And the other voice in my, set, in my head said, but it's so hard. Spiritual family is so hard and it's so messy because it involves our sin and our stories and our mess. And the truth is this morning that our picture about spiritual family because of that starts to get a little bit blurry. 
And so this morning, I want to bring into focus in just a couple of pictures God's word this morning and give us some pictures that his word gives us so that we can sharpen the reality of spiritual family in our minds. Because the truth is, we are a spiritual family this morning that is built on the word of God. And unless we camp out there and allow our assumptions and our experiences and our stories to shape the inward stuff going on in us, we will never get the outward stuff right. And so here's the first picture I want to give you, and it's the picture that takes place in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. It says this, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And maybe if you approach scripture like I do, often with more questions than you have answers and you don't know the rest of the story, you'd have to think in this moment, who is God talking to? Some people might say he was talking to the heavenly beings and others might say that he was talking to himself, which I am prone to do on occasion. But later, Jesus clarifies that these verses speak to the fact that in creation, the fullness of God was present. The fullness of God being Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have to remember, friends, foundational in our understanding of what it means to be a spiritual family is that God, in his fullness, is a family. That God in and of himself is in relationship. And it is out of this fullness that he creates family. There's a theologian by the name of Jerry Brashears out of Western Seminary that says this, God is a family who builds a family. God is a family who builds a family. Just like our earthly families, when a man and women come together and a new creation is formed out of God's overflow, out of his relationships, comes the spiritual family. The second picture I want to give you this morning comes just from two chapters down the road in Genesis, and it says this. This is familiar to you. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But then the Lord called to the man, where are you? Powerful words. Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This story is so familiar to us because it's the story of when sin first enters into the human narrative. 
And what's the context for the very first sin? It's family. It's family. And Adam and Eve have this interaction that many of us know all too well. Whether it's with a spouse or a roommate or a sibling, Adam and Eve have this interaction and this blame shifting is going on, right? As soon as their sin is discovered, Adam turns to God and says, the woman you put here, she made me do it. I mean, how many of us hear echoes of this in our own home? And Eve looks at the serpent and says, no, the serpent made me do it, right? And then into that situation comes the curse and Adam and Eve realize that they are naked and this is where shame first enters the picture. They realize that they are naked and what do they do? They hide. We don't know if they have regret or remorse, but we know that in this moment, this family created out of the overflow of who God is, is now tainted. And my friends, the truth is for each of us, at an early age, our unconscious minds are taking inventory of all that's the happening around us. And we're developing this blueprint of sorts. And while we depend on our parents, while we depend on primary caregivers for all sorts of things, for food and for clothing and for love and support, for comfort, we are also taking our cues from them and absorbing experiences about what it means to live in the context of family. And some of these messages are beautiful and helpful and other messages have been wounding and they've set into motion some unhealthy patterns. And friends, I know that when I look around this room, it's like we have maybe 150 sets of blueprints playing out. We have 150 sets of assumptions, 150 sets of expectations about what family looks like. Doesn't that sound fun? Which is why we need to keep our eyes and our minds focused on God's word and to offer each other enough grace to kind of figure it out, right? And we could talk about that a whole lot more, but let me give you this third picture. And that's from Luke 8, 19 through 21. It says this, now Jesus' mother and brothers came to him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. And someone told him, hey, your mothers and your brothers, They're standing outside. They're wanting to see you. And what is Jesus' reply? This is so interesting. He says, my mother and my brothers are those that hear God's word and put it into practice. Friends, this is a radical redefinition of family. Because central to Jesus' vision of life in the kingdom of God is the calling to a brand new family. The people hearing these words were a largely Jewish audience. And Jesus was saying, friends, you can be Jewish and you cannot be a part of the family. And the audience, they would have thought that was bananas, right? Like that was crazy. That is not how their world worked. But Jesus insisted, those that are part of the family... Those that are my mothers and my brothers are those that hear God's word and put it into practice. And for some of us, this whole reality of having a new spiritual family might sound simple. It might be something that we have known and we've been a part of for our entire lives. 
What a gift. What a gift. For others, this might sound a bit scary because we've got enough drama going on in our own families and now God's word is telling me I'm gonna get another one, right? And some of us get a little uncomfortable because we know how to do church, right? We know how to do church. I'm gonna get my car, I'm gonna go to a building, I'm maybe gonna put on my happy face and I'm gonna do church and I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna get on with my life. But once you start talking about family, that sounds a little bit too close. That sounds a little too intimate. The other reality, and many of you know that this is true, but spiritual family has been a hurtful experience. And the very thing that God created as something to be a vehicle for restoration and rebuilding has instead been wounding towards individuals and people and groups. Friends, we have a lot of work to do as we talk about spiritual family. And so I want to give us a couple of pictures of what spiritual family looks like as Jesus moved towards the cross and a few challenges for us as a community as we live this out. But in order to do this, I want to set the stage for just a minute because we're going to look at some verses in the book of John. And in this passage in John that we're going to look at, Jesus has been up all night. This is his movement towards the cross. He has been up all night and he has gone through six different trials at this time. He's gone through three different religious trials and three Roman trials. And all of these trials were illegal because they all took place at night, right? And at that time, trials were not to be done in the evening. And after these trials, they beat him. They spit on him and they scourged him. And the Romans were very good at torturing people and they knew how to inflict the maximum amount of pain because scourging was more than whipping. A scourge was this whip that was fashioned with nine different tails on it, which meant every time you were hit, it left nine marks on your body. You get 40 stripes and actually Jesus had over 280 bruises and cuts on his back before he went to the cross. Friends, people would often die here. They wouldn't actually make it to the cross. And so they nail him to the cross and the crowd is shouting insults at him the whole time. Everybody has left him. None of the disciples show up at the cross except for one who is John. John, the beloved disciple. He is the disciple that shows up. The other group that shows up are the women. One commentator states, no one cared that a group of women had gathered at the foot of the cross because in that culture, not a lot of attention was paid to the women. And while that is true, other writers suggest that the presence of these women was not due to the fact that they were so unimportant that no one would notice them. Instead, it was because they loved Jesus so much that they were willing to risk their lives to be with him as he hung upon that cross. I tend to favor that commentator. And so this group is bewildered and they're heartbroken and they're filled with sorrow, but they are there. And Jesus, in this moment, friends, this is This is a beautiful moment of scripture. In this moment, Jesus, he looks down at his mother and he looks down at his best friend, John, and he ignores the crowd. And in the quietness of this moment, he gives this word of love. And here's what he says. He said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, to John, he says, here is your mother. 
From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And these words, they seem so simple. Mother, here's John, your new son. And John, here's Mary, your new mother. And that sounds so simple, but it has profound implications for how you and I choose to live in spiritual family. When you understand the meaning behind it, because it shows us, friends, the very heart of God It shows us his compassion and his tenderness and God's love and his care for you and in your pain as well as everybody else's. What do we learn from these simple words? And I just want to give you a few things. Friends, we learn what it means to love like Jesus. And that sounds so simple, but it is not simplistic because as you live in this spiritual family, love, it must be something that you do. It's not just something you say, it is a choice and an action. And friends, in the middle of Jesus's pain and he's hanging on the cross dying, he chose to care for his family. Dear woman, here is your son. And John, here is your mother. These are Jesus' last words and testament. This is one of the last phrases he says on earth before he dies and then comes back in the resurrection. What is Jesus' last earthly task but he provides for his mother? He takes care of his earthly family. Jesus, he knows Mary is old, she's poor, she's a widow because Joseph had died years earlier and she is going to need to be cared for. So even in the middle of his pain, he looks down and he says, John, I want you to take care of my mom. And mom, I want you to take care of my best friend. And friends, I just want to check in with you this morning. How are you doing caring for your family? We get so wrapped up in our day-to-day lives, we forget how much being people that love and follow Jesus means first loving our family. And I don't just mean parents that have kids at home. But how are each of us doing as we live out the love that Jesus gives to us by loving our families? And I know this morning for some of us, that means exhibiting a far more radical love than others. Right? But if Jesus took his love to the cross, we we can do this work, right? Maybe this morning you feel like, I have got nothing else to give. And Jesus, he knows how it feels Friends, he looks at his mother and he knows, I have nothing left to give you. He doesn't have an inheritance. He doesn't have any money to give her. He doesn't have a home to leave her. He has nothing. Even the clothes he wore, the Romans are gambling over at the foot of the cross. So what does he do? Friends, even greater than giving her all the things, He gives her relationship. He says to her mother, here is your son. He says to John, my best friend, here is a relationship, here's my mother. 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 4 says, take care of widows who are destitute. If a widow has family members to take care of her, let them learn 
that religion begins at their own doorstep and that they should pay back with gratitude some of what they have received. This pleases God immensely. Friends, I love that phrase. Religion begins at our own doorstep. The second thing is this. Mary's interaction with her son on the cross, it calls us to remember to care for our families. But this tender moment also challenges us to see other people's pain, even when, and here's the kicker, we are in pain. I mean, imagine the emotional baggage and the pain and suffering Mary had to go through her entire life simply by being Jesus' mother. I mean, there are weeks I have it rough or I think I have it rough, right? But in the first place, she had this unexplainable conception. When she goes to her friends and she says, really, like I haven't had sex. And they're like, yeah, right, Mary, right? And really, I am carrying the Son of God. Right, Mary? Like, would you believe that? Nobody did. And this cloud of illegitimacy covers her pregnancy the whole time. And then this baby is born, and at the end of the first week, she and Joseph take the baby, remember this? To Jerusalem, to the temple, to be dedicated. And Simeon comes out and says, I need to tell you about this baby. And he foretells and he predicts this child is going to live a life of suffering. And by the way, Mary, this suffering is going to pierce your heart too. And the next thing we see is Jesus is not even two years old. And Herod puts out a decree and says, I'm going to kill all the baby boys under two so I can kill off this future Messiah. And Mary and Joseph, they flee as refugees to Egypt, another country, because the government wants to kill their baby. And after a time, at 30 years of age, Jesus starts his public ministry and he starts raising people from the dead and he starts doing miracles. And after a year, he kind of goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and he says, I'm the son of God. And the people who grew up with him said to Jesus, you're nuts. And they got so mad at Jesus, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And now he's tortured as a criminal. He's hanging on a cross, a gory and gruesome and bloody death. And Mary is there at the foot of the cross. And Jesus looks down and he pays attention to her in spite of his pain. And he provides for her and her needs in spite of his pain. And he comforts her. Friends, we love like Jesus loved when we see other people's pain, even when we're in pain. We look out for people who are hurting. We look out for people who are on the fringe, even when we are hurting. Some of my pastor friends were writing goals for their church recently, and one of the lead pastors said, you know, we just really need to not get stuck in the things that suck. I mean, that's good, right? We just need to not get stuck in the things that suck. I mean, it's so easy to allow our own pain to isolate us and to move us away from relationship and away from the life-giving nature of just taking care of others and that's part of the lies of this world. And instead, in this interaction, Jesus gives to us a new rhythm. I don't know about you, but this is not normal for me. Because typically when I'm in pain, I become very self-centered. 
And we put, pull into this shell and we focus on ourselves. And you can just ask my family when I'm sick. Right, this past winter in the throes of stomach flu, I was upstairs in bed and it had been like 15 minutes and no one had checked on me. <laughs> right? And my husband, Chris, comes up, the poor guy. He comes up and I'm in bed and I look like a person who has been watching Netflix for two days straight. And I'm like holding the bowl and I have like Kleenexes all around and I'm like, you have never loved me. <laughs> Like, how did you know I was alive? It has been 15 minutes, right? Like, <laughs> who wants to be around that? But Jesus, even in his excruciating pain, his eyes are focused outward. Philippians 2.5 says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, friends, live with your eyes wide open. Find someone else who's hurting and help them, which, by the way, this is great, is the way you get out of pain. Friends, doing spiritual family well means it begins at their own doorstep. It happens when they're in the midst of our pain, when we make choices to see others, and finally, we have to choose to live in spiritual family. Notice I didn't say living in spiritual family, or I did say living into spiritual family, not just going to a spiritual family. What's so interesting in this brief interaction is that Mary had other adult children who could have stepped in to care for her. We know that Mary and Joseph had at least six more kids. Um, it's interesting that none of his brothers and sisters show up at the cross. Why? Because in John 7, it says that none of them believed he was the son of God yet. It wasn't until after the resurrection that his very own family would say, huh, like he wasn't kidding, right? We knew he was a little weird. Like he really was the son of God. And Jesus, when he's taking care of his mother in his final dying minutes, he entrusts her not to the care of his own family, but to a fellow believer, to a fellow Christian. And he says, Mom, John is going to take care of you. Why? Because John was a believer and he knew that he needed to be there for her. I got to call a family the other week who had just had a baby and said, you know, our church would love to bring over some meals for you as you welcome your little one. And their immediate response was, oh, well, you don't have to do that. And I said, yes, we do. Because that's what family does. I love that last week, Nick Novak um, ran up to me after the service and he pointed to the bulletin and he said, I need to know this person. And I was like, what are you talking about? Um, but it turns out we had announced Candace Jones, who is a part of our church family, had a little girl last week who was born as a preemie at two pounds and three ounces, and she is currently in the NICU. And Nick and his wife, Natalie, know what it's like because they had Theo, who is also a micro preemie, and spent the first few months of his life in the NICU. And Nick ran up to me because he was so excited at the opportunity to get to love another person who was going through the same circumstance. And friends, that's what family does. I love watching our choirs. They come together each week to rehearse, but they also spend time praying for one another and for the needs of our church. Because that's what family does. I love getting to visit Charlie and Louisa, a dear family who came to our church as refugees and now Charlie is battling cancer. 
you can give Louisa a hug after the service. And I get there only to find out that Tom Watkins, Donna Peterson, and Bev Ackleblad have already been there <laughs> to check and make sure that they have everything they need. Because that's what family does. And I come to church on Wednesday nights. And from walking around and just taking it in, it might just look like a group of people who are eating dinner together. Followed by massive efforts to connect with kids, play games in the gym, lead worship in small groups for our students, doing crafts and having conversations in the gallery. But friends, this would actually be selling it short. Because every week I leave and I feel like we are fighting for family. And I've thought carefully about this statement and I don't think it's overly dramatic because in a culture of difference and division, in a culture of sound bites and short fuses, our spiritual family is working together to build bridges. Our family is working to welcome difference. Our spiritual family is working to listen well. And here's the thing. When we believe that family is built on something other than ourselves, when our family is built around God, that's what family does. Galatians 2.10 states, whenever we have the opportunity to help anyone, we should do it, but we must give special attention to those who belong in the family of believers. I must treat every other believer as my family. If I am a follower of Christ, that means every other Christian, everybody else in the church is my brother and is my sister. Friends, that same bond that existed and was created between Mary and John in Jesus' death is now one that is available to us. The bond of a physical family, not of a physical family, but of a spiritual family. And here's the thing, it will outlast anything in this world. This family is far from perfect because it's made up of us but it's one that Jesus Christ at its center and it gives us an example of loving our families through the gift of relationship, through seeing others' pain even when I'm dealing with my own stuff and redefining family, creating new bonds between broken people but who are keeping their lives focused on the cross and that's a family that I want to be a part of. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray that as your word is central to our spiritual family, that it would shape us, that it would mold us in terms of what we expect from each other and how we give to our own family. God, we thank you for who you are and that you draw us together and create bonds that um, do not exist because of physical relationships, but because of the relationship of Jesus Christ. And so we are thankful for that today. In your name we pray, amen.